the kids it's not coming back g'day sports fans and welcome to quinny's cult heroes thanks to the ladbrokes listen network our very special guest today a man that holds a special place in the heart of bulldog supporters out at the witten oval a warm welcome to dan southern Thanks, Quinny. Good to see you, mate. It doesn't feel natural saying Dan, because I've always heard you as Danny. How yep. did Danny start? You had nothing to do with it. It's like your alter ego. It is. I used to call it my stage name, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah, I was always Daniel or Dan growing up. And it's funny how you associate sort of, you know, people with names. And there was a kid at school I didn't particularly warm to, and his name was Danny. <laughs> and so no one ever called me that ever. And then I landed in Victoria to play for the Bulldogs and um, just got branded Danny Southern. So, yeah, I used to call it my stage name and obviously still answer to it. But, yeah, before... <laughs> prefer Daniel or Dan. It does roll off the tongue, Danny Southern, I must admit, but how did it start? Do you know if a commentator called you Danny Southern or a coach or you got introduced and it just snowballed? Yeah, I, I've got no idea really. Yeah. yeah, I just sort of, I think just sort of, must have been someone in the media I would have assumed, but yeah, I think maybe Terry Wheeler, the coach at the time, might have called me Danny as well. And I, in my first Guernsey presentation, I was lucky enough to have the late, great EJ Witten hand me my number eight jumper. And, and uh, he used to call me the Ox. So yeah, so my, my nickname around the club was the Ox. So What a great person to give you a jumper as well. And you had a very close association with the great EJ. You even worked at his chauffeur for a while, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I, I did, but I, I didn't do much of the driving. Kim <laughs> Costa uh, had the, the keys to the, the car and I used to go along for the ride, to be honest with you, and spend the, um, the days with Ted, which were just magnificent. You know, he worked for Adidas at the time and we used to often go down the highway down to Geelong and um, just spending that time with him was amazing for an 18-year-old from WA to be in the, the company of Mr Football. Ted Whitten was just, uh, yeah, something you can't replace and very fortunate what a great man he was. And he loved you as well. He often said about how you were one of his favourite players as well. So it must have been heartwarming to have a legend of the game speak so glowingly about you. Well, I didn't hear too much of that, obviously, but um, if that is the case, and yeah, really honoured. And, and he did give me my nickname and it came out of the blue because he'd never called me the Ox before. Just, yeah, he said number eight, the Ox. And I was like, well, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> so once you get branded from, from Teddy, then it sticks. But yeah, it's, it's an honour if, um, if he did sort of like the way I played my footy. What Teddy says goes. So just no one argues with him, especially around the Footscray Football Club. Now, early days, you were a very good athlete, but not just the footy, you're a javelin star. I was. I was a state champion. I think I won it three years in a row. And then uh, I think I was going for the fourth year and I sort of uh, was trying to get the edge back then. And I, I remember I brought this bag of glucose, which was meant to give me some energy, but it backfired on me. I sort of, yeah, had too much sugar and it yeah, burned all my energy up and, and I'm getting smoked in the final. So I did um, I did win the state championship though. And yeah, I used to love throwing the javelin around. Barefoot used to throw it. and. Yeah, threw it 49 metres, I think it was, when I was about 12, so had a decent arm. How'd you get into javelin? I don't really know. Yeah, yeah I, I loved all sports, so um, did a little bit of martial arts, judo, and played basketball, and, and a little athletics, and I was better at the field events, I wasn't super quick, um, just sort of gravitated towards the javelin, it was something that just sort of came natural to me, so it um, yeah, just went from there, and I ended up hurting myself, which was the story of the day, it was sort of the story of my life, essentially, um, ended up sort of hurting my elbow, so I retired from throwing the javelin at a young age, and after getting beaten, mate, I wasn't a great loser, so <laughs> off I went into the sunset, I was gone. I love the fact that number two in the state, you're not happy with that, so no, you move on to something no, else. No, exactly right, move on. Now, you went back to the footy, and it sounds like you're always an excellent footballer. At what stage did you think, not only do I love footy, but I can go pretty far with the game? I suppose it happened around the age of well, 15, it was. I, um, I'd always dreamed of being a footballer and we used to get very limited coverage over here in WA growing up of the VFL. Uh, we used to be able to watch the winners for an hour on a Sunday afternoon on the ABC, which was, you know, just got all my um, dreams sort of initiated from watching that. And then um, I guess when I was 14, I, I left school and uh, I tried out for the state school boys um, under 15's team it was, and I dominated this carnival, um, playing in the guts, and they got to the end of the carnival and they read at the state squad, and it was like, my name didn't get read out. I thought, what's going on here? I just dominated. They said, listen, mate, we'd love to pick you, but you have to go to school, state <laughs> school boys. So I had to go back to school the, for, the, for the second semester. So I designed a contract I'd stay, and I ended up being WA captain, got in an All-Australian team that year. Um, got picked to Tour Island and then when I came back I was playing a local grand final and I actually hurt my knee and then West Coast Eagles sort of popped up and said they had their eyes on me so I guess at that age sort of 15 I um, thought okay maybe I might be able to take this a little bit further. 
and the West Coast Eagles, they were very supportive of you through that recovery and you actually trained with one of the all-time great teams. I did, I was very blessed because I was a little bit of a scallywag, let's say, around that sort of 14, left school, uh, doing a trade, ended up doing a, an apprenticeship um, as a painter and decorator and um, running with the wrong crowd sometimes and having a bit of fun growing up and uh, I was lucky enough that the West Coast Eagles did show um, a bit of interest in me so I ended up having two operations on my knee and um, ended up spending 18 months it was doing rehab down at West Coast and that was uh, early 90s and yeah, that was such a powerful unit and what it did for me is it just gave me a, a great understanding and appreciation of what hard work had to be done to, to reach that level and it put me on a good stead and yeah when I sort of Finished training with them, I was 17 prior to playing Teal Cup, or like equivalent to the under-18s these days, and I was pretty fit, pretty strong, and ready to take it on. Unfortunately, the one negative with your career is those knees and how they restricted you to 103 games as opposed to 250. Was that almost the beginning of the end when you had those initial knee problems, they were something you had to deal with throughout your career? Yeah, it was. So it was a pretty minor incident initially. I, I did a lateral meniscus or cartilage, which should be a pretty simple sort of procedure to repair and what had happened is the, the surgeon left a foreign body in my knee so uh, the to get back to that state schoolboys after the carnival, um, played a local grand final, just went and bumped someone and over I went. And um, so I was trying to, I had the first operation and uh, just didn't recover, leg was swollen. I bluffed my way onto the tour of the island and came back and like said, can you have a look at my knee again? It's a bit sore and so basically the cartilage has got destroyed. So it was bone on bone from 15. So it was a ticking bomb. So I could only sort of manage the pain for, for so long. So unfortunate, but I never felt like I actually had a, you know, a real crack at it and got to perform at my optimum, unfortunately. But yeah, it was good enough to play 103, so take that any day, but would have loved to play a lot longer, that's for sure. There's no doubt in your ability and your desire, but it must be a little bit frustrating that you were handicapped by something that was totally out of your control. Yeah, definitely. It, um, and I didn't know that until a little bit later on when it sort of come to age of being drafted, uh, essentially. And um, after the injury had happened, came back, played a couple of games of Colts footy here, um, ended up getting picked for WA and the, the Teal Cup team, had a great carnival, won the Lark medal for the best player um, of the carnival, which was pretty good, another All-Australian jumper. And then I was, you know, I guess, optimistic that I'd go pretty early in the draft. So back then it wasn't telecast or anything like that. So I was sitting here and you didn't even have a, a radio update. It was just whenever West Australian boys got drafted every 15 minutes, I think they'd do a little update on the, on the wireless and um, end up going at draft pick number 92. So I think it was 13 guys from that state team who got drafted before me and I was like, what's happened here? And so I later found out that apparently West Coast were trying to pull a bit of a swifty and told everyone that my knee was no good. Um, I wouldn't be uh, able to play at that level and that's when Footscray jumped in at pick number 92 and, and off we went. But it's quite incredible because as you said, you won the Lark medal. So for those listening at home, that's basically the equivalent for the best junior footballer at the top level. Now, the second division, Michael Voss won the award. So you've won the better division award and then you've gone in the draft and you've gone pick 92. So it is actually hard to fathom that you did slide that far. Yeah, well, I don't know what was, yeah, what West Coast had obviously said, or maybe, maybe everyone knew that, you know, I had that sort of injury um, history. Or maybe it wasn't that good. No, Wouldn't that's maybe, not the case. Maybe, not that option. Yeah, it's... you never know. But uh, maybe I played as a centre-half forward and I ended up playing, obviously, a key position in, in my AFL career, but maybe a little bit short. I was like 188, six foot two, um, not super quick. I didn't have that many tricks, just more of a, a workman. Um, so perhaps, you know, the position I played sort of at junior levels, maybe at the next level they didn't see me playing that role and, and couldn't see where I fit in. So, so who knows, but yeah, managed to get an opportunity, which was, you know, a dream come true. Well, I think it's going to go down as one of the all-time great steals at the draft. You would pick 92. I don't mean to embarrass you, but that's just an amazing career on the back of that selection. So 1993 comes, you're a Western Bulldogs player or a Footscray player, but you stay in Perth and play the season for Claremont. How did that eventuate? Yeah, so what had happened after I got drafted, uh, I'd only played maybe five Colts games of footy, plus that Teal Cup Carnival. And so Jared Neesham, who was a coach at Claremont, said, listen, you haven't played much footy for, you know, two years. Um, I recommend you stay here and play a, a year of league waffle footy and then, um, you know, head over to Victoria after that. So I took his advice and it worked out pretty well for me because it gave me the opportunity to play a full season of footy. Um, played in a premiership, which was a bonus. And, uh, you know, by the time I got over to Victoria as a 19 year old, 
Um, I'd sort of had that season of playing with men and was ready to sort of hit the AFL at um, yeah, full steam ahead. So it was a blessing in disguise and, and it was the only premiership I ever played in. Um, you know, I played footy from the age of five and they're hard to come across, yeah, few and far between. So it was um, good that I got one. It's actually a 30 year anniversary coming up in a couple of weeks time. I've missed the last 29, so I'll make sure I get to this one. Make sure you uh, get the three votes at that as well. I yeah, oh, I don't know about that. Yeah, it'll be a few seasoned <laughs> campaigners, I'm sure. It's a some few stayers, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now you go to the Bulldogs. What was it like walking into the footy club for the first time? What do you remember? I, don't remember lots, to be honest. My memories, I don't know, I've had too many concussions across the journey, but I do remember just, you know, going out to Footscray and a bit of a culture shock for me, to be honest with you, coming from Perth and um, hitting sort of inner sort of western suburbs of, of Victoria and very working class. And, um, you know, I arrived on the same day as Luke Darcy and Brad Johnson, and Kim Costa, and we, we forged a really great relationship um, from day one. And it was, it wasn't, I don't know whether it was really intimidating because I was pretty confident in my ability that I was, you know, ready to go. Um, but, you know, the, the club embraced me, the supporters embraced me. Um, you know, back then it was still a little bit old school that you had to sort of earn your stripes. So I just went to work and trained really hard and uh, was lucky enough to sort of get picked for round one in, in 1994. So it all got off to a pretty good start. And that round one game against Richmond, a two-point win at the Western Oval. Do you remember about running out on the ground and the song afterwards, or does it sort of all merge into a blur all these years later? Yeah, it does, it does merge into a blur, that's for sure. I do have a couple sort of, I guess, memories of it. I don't really remember running out on the ground much as... I remember the atmosphere, and I sort of have an overall sort of image of the, the game, but I know it was pretty tight, and my good mate Matthew Croft, I do know he kicked five in that game, and um, I don't remember lots about it, to be honest with you. Yeah. Do you remember anything about a week later? You're playing Geelong at Kittedia Park and you think, OK, we've got this young bloke from the West, we'll ease him into the team, we'll give him a few soft games. No. You play on arguably the greatest player of all time, Gary Ablett Senior. Can you remember when they said you're going to line up on Gaza? Yeah, it was, yeah I do remember that because it was a pretty nervous week. You know, I found out early in the week and it was... Um, you know, Gary Ablett Senior for me is the greatest player that I've ever seen and a uh, real, real honour to actually have played on him on, on a number of occasions. That in my second game I was a little bit premature, I think. I, I'd never played full back before in my life. You know, I played a little bit of centre-half back or half-back flank but never sort of been down in a cage one-on-one -on -one with, you know, such a great player. So things didn't go too well. He, um, I've run out and it was just me and him inside 50 and down at Cantonia Park. He's given me a couple quick ones in the guts to sort of soften me up a little bit. Didn't have too much to come back with and then before you know it, he's kicked four in the first quarter. Well, there we go. This is going to be a long day. He was kicking 14. I think he might have kicked 130 or so that year, so he had a pretty good year. And um, I've gone in a quarter time. I remember I was looking at the coach like, please, you know, take me off him, give me a chance. And he goes, mate, we're sticking with you. And um, so it gave me a little bit of confidence to hold my own for the rest of the game. He ended up kicking seven, but he kicked seven, seven for the day. So that wasn't a bad outcome considering, but uh, not so good for the coach. So Terry Wheeler, he um, ended up getting sacked on the Monday. So he, uh, yeah, I reckon the president might have looked at him and what's he doing? He's lost his mind. He's got this second game player on Gaza. Yeah, time to move on. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a big day. It was very hard for defenders back then though, because it was one-on-one -on -one and the ball was coming in so quickly and you're one-on-one -on -one with, as we've said, one of the greatest players of all time. And you mentioned you kicked four in that first quarter. I think with three of the four, you were in the perfect spot. For him to sit on my head, perhaps. You were doing it, the right thing. Yeah. It's just he was too good. Too good, yeah. Was, he didn't know how to play on him, to be honest with you, because he was, he was so quick. So if you went sort of man on man with him, he'd, he'd break him on the lead. If you tried to jostle with him, he was super strong, so he'd outmuscle you. If um, you, know, you sat in front of him, he'd sit on your head. If you're good enough to bring it to ground level, he would kick them over his shoulder. So the only hope you, I really had is that the footy wasn't coming down, but um, we got smoked. We lost by, I don't know, 90 points or something, I yeah. think it was in the end. So um, when you got Hocking, Bearstow and Couch coming through the midfield with not too much pressure, it's um, yeah, not a nice place to be. No, there'd be a feeling of helplessness. And is it true that he would commentate the play as well? So not only did you have to continue 
contend with him, you had to put up with his commentary. Yeah, he was pretty good. You know, <laughs> he'd say, Barnes down to hockey, over, get a Bearstow, and then before you know it, he'd give you a little whack and, and off he went. So I did learn my lesson, though. I did play on Gary a couple other times after that, and I actually started listening to his commentary, and it gave me a bit more of an opportunity to, to hold him. So I think he might have kicked two on another time I played him. So I, I learned my lessons, definitely, for sure. And holding him to two goals is as good as you can hope for. Oh, definitely, yeah. Very rarely keep him goalless. I think Mick Martin, maybe Soss might have done it, but I think they might have had 10 or 12 kicked on him in another time as well. So, um, you know, I used to look at it back then. I was fortunate to play on some great um, forwards. And if you sort of kept them to two or three, generally you'd take the points. Yep. Four, you could sort of break even potentially. Anything more than that, you normally sort of lowered your colours. But, you know, I was sitting, I was sitting there watching a Brownlow medal count from the early 90s with my son um, a few months ago. And it was quite amazing when they go round four, Ablett kicked 14, Lockett kicked 12, Dunster 11, and you know, it was just amazing that every yeah. week you had these superstars kicking, you know, big bags, and it was exciting. It was a great era of footy. It was a magnificent era of footy because I feel like it was when professionalism hadn't come in too much and the tactics weren't too strong, but you had these terrific players, and it was such an attacking brand of footy to watch across the competition. Yeah, I think it was. It was hard and it was fun. And as you mentioned, that professionalism was sort of. So we were prime athletes. I, I spent a bit of time around footy clubs in my work these days, and I, I see the sort of testing, um, you know, their running capacity and the strength in the gym and you know we're, we're equal if not yep. superior in, in many facets um, back then in the 90s so you know as far as the strength and condition and the sports science um, you know it's definitely evolved a lot but I don't think they're much more better athletes than what we were back in the day and it was a hard tough physical game but then one-on-one contests were I think yeah really engaging for the crowd because you get heckled and you'd get all sorts over the fence and you knew that yeah if you're down in that sort of in a goal square it was going to be uh, an entertaining day. And Terry Wallace comes in. Tell us about Terry. Yeah, so we actually had Alan Joyce who replaced um, Wheeler. Um, so Joyce, he was there for about a year and a half or a couple of years it might have been. And then Plough really got us going as a club um, when he took over. It might have been in the 96, I think it might have been after we had a three or four win season. But Plough did an amazing job with us to get us super fit. Um, you know, we're, we're ruthless as a club. We, we had a really fine balance of guys that were permitted you know, prepared to roll their sleeves up and go to the well and just take one for the team. And we had the guys who could execute and finish. So we were a pretty good outfit there for, for a few years, but never quite um, got, uh, you know, the, the promised land here. Yeah, that, that cup eluded us, unfortunately. It was still a wonderful time for the Bulldogs, despite not getting the ultimate prize. And with Terry Wallace, we've seen a lot of clips of some of the all-time great motivational speeches and sprays that he gave along the way. Most famously, when he says, if anyone gets a pat on the back, he's going <laughs> to spew. Was that common that he'd go off like that? Would that happen frequently, or was it just one or two times where it did happen, it was captured on film? Oh, we're winning more than we're yeah. losing, so that's a good thing. Yeah, I think we always try to win about 16 games of the year, so those six or seven games that you did lose. If you went down without a fight, you'd definitely cop and plough. was uh, pretty notorious for giving a good spray. And he used to have this big, thick vein in his, in his neck that used to go, yeah. He used to bulge a fair bit when he used to get worked up, but yeah, he could give a good spray, that's for sure. He certainly got the best out of you, that's for sure as well. Now, you're a proud Western Australian, and it's funny when looking back through your career, there are a few incidents against the West Coast Eagles, most notably the first time you came back to play in Perth. A lot went on just before half-time. What can you remember about that day? Oh, it was a big day for me. Yeah, I was, I was 19. I, I grew up in the shadows of Subiaco Oval and all of my childhood was, you know, around that sort of, you know, that footy ground and I used to go down and watch West Coast train and throw the balls back. And this was prior to me sort of training with them. So there was, was a lot of emotion involved. And I was actually sitting on the bench that day when the incident went down. And um, yeah, Stephen Wallace just yeah, ironed out Brett Hetty with a beautiful hip and shoulder. Um, right in front of us and before you know it the siren had gone and uh, push got to shove and it got a little bit willing there and um, you know always there to fly the flag for the teammates so I sort of got involved and yeah one thing led to another and really unfortunate situation that um, yeah just in amongst the the melee um, yeah Peter Sumich obviously yeah passed out from um, from a yeah, I guess a headlock that I had him in and yeah, it sort of, it changed me. Yeah, it had a massive effect on me and still actually haunts me to this day, which is nearly 30 years ago now. So it was, um, yeah, it was a pretty big day. And it must have been a very tough week for you as well because you probably left the ground and got on the plane and came home almost oblivious to how serious the situation had got. Yeah, we had, I had no idea of his condition. So we went into the change rooms at half time and came back out 
um, for the second half and Peter wasn't there so I didn't think too much of it but the crowd certainly let me know. It was um, pretty loud that day Subi Oval and, and uh, they certainly uh, yeah, gave me a bit of what for after that but yeah, I didn't know. We, anyway, we got, we got beaten that day, jumped on the plane, headed back to Melbourne, Tallarine Airport, hopped off um, at the gate. There was a you know, big heap of media there and I was like, oh, okay, I don't know what's happened here but it doesn't look good. And then we sort of got wind that, you know, Peter wasn't in a great state. And then, um, yeah, that week um, was really interesting because that was the last home away game of the year and we were both playing finals. And um, investigation took place and I ended up getting cited along with maybe seven or so other players. And um, it dragged on late into the week and then, um, yeah, sort of a bit of legal action sort of took place and my tribunal hearing actually got postponed for a week. So I sort of went into the first final against Geelong. Lucky I wasn't playing on Ablett that day, but <laughs> I did play on him for a little bit. But um, yeah, so it was, a, it was a massive week and a few people lost their jobs out of it, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it got pretty messy. It did get messy. It was bizarre the fact the tribunal hearing was after the game. It's hard to fathom that did happen as well. And it was a fascinating game as well because that was the game where Billy Browns kicked the winning goal after the siren so it was a big week for the club. Yeah he was actually on me, <laughs> he was actually on me so it was a horrible week and I mentioned Ablett, he, he got into a bit of a biffo with my best mate Steve Crediok and I still hadn't been to the tribunal for Sumich when I looked over and Gaz is throwing him around and I gouged him, give him a couple and it was like you know I should really go in there and throw him around but I sort of hesitantly went over there and sort of gently tried to pull him away from the situation so I I still live in regret <laughs> for that one. And then, yeah, Billy hadn't done much the whole day. And then, um, yeah, just my luck that he managed to get his hands on one just prior to the siren and, yeah, went straight over. Once it went off the boot, I went, oh, no, that's going through. So, yeah, it was a bad week for me. Yeah, it was a tough week. And the worst thing is Billy Brownless is now a media star. So I think he talks about that one moment at least eight to ten times a day. So uh, it At just, least, at least. Yeah, every what? time I see, yeah, see him or hear him, it comes <laughs> up. And as it should, it's a great kick. And Billy's a ripping fellow. And um, I think he'd be one to acknowledge that, yeah, he had a tough night. But, yeah, he had the last laugh. But overall, though, not an ideal way to end the year for you personally and for the team, but a great first year in the AFL. And you polled 12 Brownlow votes as well. So it's almost unheard of for defenders or players outside the midfield to poll that well. So it must have been nice to get a bit of recognition from the umpires. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was yeah, quite um, a bit of a shock, to be honest with you. I didn't get invited to Brownlow, but yeah, managed to poll 12 votes. I think uh, you take the... Um, ineligible players. I think I finished 10th that year and uh, I have a bit of a joke with my, my young fella now, my son and Nick Dacos is obviously a brilliant player and you know, I asked him who got the most votes in their rookie year Danny Sutherland and Nick Dacos and I think I got him by one so um, so it was really pleasing that you got reward but you know I was an attacking sort of hard running goal kicking defender and then really after that incident and everything that took place that first year I never I was never the same, I don't think, as far as just that confidence and inner belief. And so that's how much it jolted you, that one incident at Subiaco against the Eagles with Sumich, which was not intentional. You did not mean to do that, but it jolted your confidence that much as a player, did it? Yeah, massively, yeah. Uh, I was pretty naive, pretty sheltered young man when that sort of took place. And, um, you know, the media circus that surrounded it and, you know, being front page of the paper every day when, you know, Ivan Milat was killing people in Langelow Forest and I was front and centre, which was foreign for me. Yeah. And, um, you know, just, I didn't speak to the media for maybe three years after that. I didn't leave the house. I became very reclusive. Um, it wasn't the support that you see around free clubs uh, these days and especially mental health wellbeing wasn't really prevalent back then. So you sort of just roll with the punches and hung on for the ride. But yeah, I really struggled with it and never really attacked the contest I don't think ever again as, as hard as what I did previous to that. Was and the club supportive? Oh, they were supportive. It's hard. If you say the club's supportive, I'd say no, to be honest with you. The, but when I say that, the, the supporters and everyone did like a tin rattle and actually I had a $10,000 fine. So, um, you know, the, the club and the supporters paid for that. So financially they supported it. Um, but, you know, that love that I felt from the, the Bulldog faithful that they were, you know, sending in their, you know, loose change and notes and, you know, to try and help pay for the fine was amazing. Um, but, yeah, I don't know whether I'd say the club was really that supportive. I think it was just play on. Yeah. You know, back then it was whatever happened to the field, stayed on the field, and I suppose I didn't speak to anyone about it, so they must have assumed I was okay. And, you know, we, next time we played West Coast, I was sitting duck. If anyone was there good enough to take me out, then, 
you know, that's how you sort of played back then, you know, an eye for an eye and you sort of went about it. So, yeah, no fault of theirs or probably my own fault that I probably didn't speak up and talk to people um, like we're educated now to. You say that though, but it might have almost been a sign of weakness at the time. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, certainly, you know, whenever wins and I was sort of growing up um, sort of a little bit old school, let's yep. say, um, you know, men didn't cry. That was the way I was sort of raised and um, we know we all do and I cry often, you know, and I shed lots of tears back then, that's for sure. But, um, you know, I had a bit of a bravado and a bit of an image and reputation, these sort of things are uphold as well. So, you know, I probably didn't do myself any favours. So, um, you know, if you had your time again and you're in the current environments where, you know, we know about the issues with wellbeing and definitely would have had to tap into some support. And I did later on um, in the transition out of the game, but, but not when I was sort of playing. And you ran into Peter Sumich a couple of years ago and you went up and shook his hand. That must have been a nice feeling. Yeah, it was because I'd sort of run from it. And, and once again, I was saying just then that, you know, there was no phones or social media. And if you had to contact him, you would have picked up your landline at home. I didn't have a phone at home, um, you know, and wouldn't even know how to contact him. So you just sort of played against him the next time you, you ran out the next season. And so I, I never apologised to Peter, you know, and I seen him once at a an event and um, I wasn't ready to confront him so I actually took off I left this concert and, and went home and um, I saw him in Fremantle I was sitting with my wife having a coffee and I said there's Peter Sumich and um, she said get up go and see him and go and apologize to him so I did and gave him a big hug and yeah he was a great man and took my apology and it was you know 25 years post sort of incident and um, yeah, he was just a ripping guy and it was nice to sort of bury that hatchet let's say and and put them onto bed. I'd love to have had a camera on Peter Sumich's face when he looked up to see you there. Yeah, it was it was interesting because he was he was with I think he was coaching state 18s at that stage, and it looks like it was a match committee meeting. So I, I didn't really want to interfere, but I apologised and you know excused myself. And um, yeah, Peter was good enough to come over and yeah have five minutes with me, which was which was great. But. Yeah, he sort of looked up and he's like, oh no, <laughs> not you, he'd probably wanted to yeah, pay it back with a little bit of interest. So, but um, as I said, he was, um, he was just a gentleman. And yeah. as per usual, it's the wives that are the voices of reason that push us to do these things. Yeah, well she did, she definitely did, otherwise I would have fled again. Yeah, yeah just, um, yeah, something I just, you know when the water passes, yep. it's been so long and it was like, um, yeah, just the time was right, you know, and I'm, so I'm glad that it actually took place. Now your Western Bulldogs over the years under Terry Wallace go from strength to strength and in 1997 it looks like we're on a collision for the Bulldogs and St Kilda throughout the course of the grand final. Unfortunately though going into the finals, for you personally, everything went wrong. Tell us about that, you copped a suspension in the final game of the season and then you got injured while doing training to keep yourself fit. Yeah, it was another <laughs> unfortunate situation. Yeah, it was the last game of um, the season, 97, we played Hawthorne out at Waverley and uh, there was a little bit of push and shove going on. It wasn't too much. Um, I remember it was Scott West, I think he had maybe Crawford and Taylor it might have been. Three of them, you know, they were sort of featherweights um, having a bit of a wrestle. So I've sort of gone in, wrapped my arms around two of them and we sort of gently rolled onto the ground and that was it. Didn't think anything of it. It definitely wasn't wrestling. You see what happens, mm. see back over if I want to wrestle. And then, um, yeah, so anyway, I got sighted and got suspended for a week. Um, for wrestling. I think I'm still the only player I think that's ever been suspended for wrestling. And then, um, yeah, it obviously missed the first final and then did some cross training at the tan and just pulled up a little bit short. So I missed the prelim, but would have been 100% ready to go for the, the big one. But yeah, we just didn't quite get there. We Unfortunately, that was the prelim where the Bulldogs looked home for all money and Liberatore thought he'd kick the goal to seal the match. It was ruled a point and then in the blink of an eye, the Crows came storming back. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, Darren Jarman just went berserk and I think he might have kicked five in the last quarter. And was, I think it was something like 28 points up with 10 minutes to go. So when Libba sort of kicked that, that point, you know, you, it's funny because I was sitting in the stand with Paul Dimitina who was suspended as well. And we both would have been ready to go for the big one. But, you know, I, looked, I turned and I said, I think we'll lose this. You know, I just saw that the energy had sort of changed from, you know, com competitive sort of instincts to jubilation you know we've, we've won this one we're going to go into the grand final and yeah sure enough they just went bang 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 and it was all over so it was um yeah it was a, probably the i guess most emotional day i've probably had in footy involved in footy just so close yet 
yet so far. And a devastating loss as well. Not just a loss, but the way it happened. So it's a credit to the team and the club and the players, the way they did come back the next year. Because it would have been very easy. And sometimes we've seen this when teams have capitulated on the big stage. They then melt the next year. But the Bulldogs, to your credit, you came back just as hard the next year. Yeah, we did back it up. We might have, I think that year we might have played against North in maybe the last game of the year, battle of top spot. And we ended up making the prelim final once again. Uh, I think we finished second on the North beat us that night, but um, we came across Adelaide once again in the prelim final and yeah, they were just way too good. I, I'd miss that one as well. I had a bad year with injuries that year and couldn't quite get right. But um, yeah, it's unfortunate because you know, I would have played on Matthew Robin. I think he maybe kicked five or seven that day and um, generally didn't kick too many. So, you know, and McLeod, I think, had a sensational game. So they were just way too good. Yeah, we weren't good enough and they came to play and. Yeah, that was our opportunity. The window shut, unfortunately. We're still around the mark for the next couple of years that I played, but yeah, never quite, quite good enough to get there again. And a lot of the time you probably thought, we're close, we'll be back, we'll be back, we'll be back. But with you personally and the team, it did end suddenly. Like the fact that your last year was in 2000, because unfortunately your body just let you down. Yeah, it got, um, my knee got really sore. Uh, that, that year in 2000, we played, um, I played the first eight games, I think it was. And we played seven of those at the new Marvel Stadium, what it's known as these days, at Docklands down there. And the ground was pretty hard. And you know, someone that's got a degenerative knee condition, it wasn't uh, wasn't conducive to me recovering very well. And uh, chipped a few bits of bone off. And I went and had surgery after round eight, and, and never played again. Unfortunately, um, yeah, just got the stage where you know I'd need needles to train, needles to play. I'd get 250 mils of fluid drained off it on a Monday nurse it through the week. I lived in a Victorian terrace place. I couldn't walk upstairs uh, to sleep on a mattress downstairs on the floor and um, it was pretty tough. Yeah, it was, um, I like to think I got a pretty good pain tolerance, but yeah, I couldn't put up with it any longer. And yeah, the mental game, yeah, the, the mind took over and said, yeah, we're tapping out. So yeah, that was it. That was yeah. it. It ended very suddenly. You played during that period we spoke about with all the superstars and how great footy was. You also played in a lot of great venues. A lot of them in the last couple of years of playing AFL footy. You were there for the Dogs' final game out at the Western Oval. You had a win over West Coast, and you were typically tough that day as well. You served it up to Michael Gardner with Steve Krediuk, and the Dogs got the win. And that's one game a lot of Bulldog supporters hold very close to their heart. Yeah, they they do. Like they actually had, um, I think they had some sort of vote quite recently. What the you know the best ten you know things that happened at the, the Whitten Oval or Western Oval, and I think that came in number two. It was only pipped by. I think the 89, you know, when we when we saved the club, or I wasn't involved at that stage, but came in at number two as a, the highlight of the, you know, the history of that uh, that venue, and it was a great day, and um, yeah, it was. I got fined seven and a half thousand, so did Steve Critic and Craig Ellis, but we sort of did ambush Michael Gardner before the first bounce, and I think it was a blood rule before the yeah siren even went. Um, so I remember running down there and we just, we used to have a play that was in the gun and Gardner was in the gun that week so I just went and said welcome to the kennel and, and off we went, we went into it so it was, um, it's great to have a win, it was just amazing playing at the, at that, at our home ground and the crowd back then could still run onto the oval and even come into the change rooms after the, the game and sing the song with us so it was, um, it was a good old days, it was a magic day. I asked a Bulldog supporter recently, I said, why do you love that win so much? He goes, because it was the haves versus the have-nots. So they loved being West Coast because they thought it was this rich club from Perth and had to come over to our backyard and it was tough, but it was wet, it was windy. Exactly what you'd want in the final game at that venue. Oh, it was a horrible day. <laughs> it was cold and windy and muddy, which, which I loved, you know. Playing down back, that was perfect conditions. Yeah, it gave me a chance. and. Yeah, it wasn't, um, I'm sure the West Coast Eagles, I think they actually had two jumpers on that day, a lot of them, so it was sort of, yeah, they weren't in the right mindset, but they were a great team, obviously, but we got the better of them that day, and it was, um, yeah, really fond memories. I think Leon Cameron um, had something to do with final siren sort of photos or posters, or um, I can't remember what the, the company was, but we managed to get a, a signed copy of the, the final siren by all the boys, and yeah, I've got it. It's not framed or nothing, Quinny. It's rolled up in a container stored away <laughs> somewhere in the shed. But uh, I do have it, so it is special, but it's, it doesn't sort of, yeah, get too much sunlight. Get it framed, Dan. I'm worried that you'll get a, a leak in the roof one day and it'll get ruined or something, because uh, that one, that'll be a very popular one. Because that's an iconic victory, and the fact that that ground 
they said goodbye to it with such a great victory, was superb. So you had a wonderful career with the Bulldogs, and I mean this sincerely, you're one of the most loved players from a football club I've ever come across. Why do you think the Bulldogs fans love you so much? Oh, thanks, Quinny. I, I was really blessed. Um, I guess, you know, they really embraced me, the Bulldog supporters. And I was really fortunate, besides the West Coast supporters, I think throughout the competition, people generally warmed to me, which was um, really nice, um, personally. Uh, I, I guess I try not to get too much ahead of myself, you know, I was just a battler, I was no superstar, tried my best, um, never died, never, you know, went down without a fight, never died wondering, let's say. Um, and I, I guess I just sort of emphasise sort of working class values and, you know, I always give people time of the day and understand that they'll sort of pay my salary essentially as supporters and members of the club and I like to think that I stayed pretty humble in amongst it all, it's pretty easy to get carried away with yourself when you're playing in the, in the big time, but, you know, I used to try and, um, yeah, just connect with the common man, let's say, and it served me well. And, and the supporters did embrace me. And as I said, you know, from that first year where they actually paid my fine and uh, went on the journey with me, it was um, pretty special. And even to this day, you know, when they talk about, you know, Bulldogs, not legends, but, you know, um, favourite players favorite of the club, players. you know, I often get mentioned, which is, um, you know, a lot of gratitude, you know, and love for the supporters, considering that I wasn't a superstar and didn't play in, you know, premierships, no All-Australians, no best and fairest, um, just battled for 103 games, but we managed to make a special connection with, you know, the, the people of the footy club, the community. And you were a great team as well, that Bulldogs team. I know you didn't win a premiership, but you went mighty close and you hold a special place in the hearts of dog supporters for what you did achieve. Who are one or two of the players that you're still tight with to this day? So it's interesting because, you know, you, you share such an amazing journey and you, you're in the trenches week in, week out, and you have such a tight connection and that common goal and focus. But, you know, when you step away from that environment, a lot of people just go on their own journey and, and off they go. So I, I'm lucky I've got three real close mates who I still stay in contact with. So Steve Crediok, yep. um, you know, remember that night after the $7,500 fine where you had a big pasta, he would laugh about that. <laughs> um, but you made him this big bowl, he thought it was the land of the giants. I used to love my food. Um, so Crush is a, a ripping bloke, he's my best mate, along with Stephen Powell who played with us at the Dogs and went off to Melbourne and St Kilda and another um, great fella called Mark West who they're my closest mates from footy and lucky enough to have lifelong friendships from our time together. How did you go at age 25 though when the rugs pulled from under you and it's done? Yeah, struggle street. Yeah, I, um, I really had challenges. Yeah, I was still never really come to terms with having a profile you know, and, and being public property. And one thing when you're playing at the highest level and you're getting paid, and that all goes with the territory. But once you step away from it and you're no longer, you know, seen as a, as a player, it's sort of hard to yeah. still be public property. And so I, I once again went through another low and became reclusive again and struggled for a, a couple of years to find sort of new identity. And um, I actually went and spoke to a psychologist at that stage and that was the thing that sort of got me moving and got me on with the next uh, stage of my life. So um, that initial transition was really difficult. Yeah, it was hard. And you moved to Egypt, what sparked that? Well, after footy had finished, I ended up going back and just upskilling myself. I left school when I was 14, so I went and studied tourism and my love was getting away from Australia. I used to take off every off season for as long as I could. Uh, I used to run away from it all. And then, you know, I just um, was still struggling with it, to be honest with you. And then I thought the only way I can sort of escape it is to flee Australia and run away. So I did. So yeah, went off to Egypt and ended up spending 10 years there nearly and never would have come back if there wasn't a revolution took place and um, who knows what I'd be doing. But yeah, obviously back here now and loving being back around footy. But yeah, um, it was my only option for me was to run away. We'll speak about the revolution in just a sec. While you're in Egypt though, you're parted with the part of you that a lot of footy fans think of and that's the rat tail. The yep. famous rat tail, you cut it off and it's a bizarre scenario what happened to the rat tail after that. Yeah, well, I, I met my wife, Reham, um, when I was in Egypt. And uh, by that stage, it didn't just have the rat tail. I, I'm obviously bald now, but, and I was hanging on to the last leg, so I was, <laughs> had it all sort of growing out, but it was pretty, pretty thin. Um, so after I asked for a hand in marriage, she said, oh, yes, but Let's get rid of that hair. The rat it's not doing had any to go. Favors. It was yeah. me or the rat tail. Yeah, exactly Did right. Did you have so, to think for a second? <laughs> no, I didn't. So, so she, anyway, she had the, the uh, privilege of, of cutting it off. And then um, it was pretty sacred to me. Like, uh, and I, throughout my journey in life, I've sort of been a little bit attracted to witchcraft and these sort of things. And 
Um, yeah, it's another story. But anyway, I hang on to my, that piece of hair and it was very precious for me. And then, uh, so I had it in a drawer and I went out one day and I've come home and the house didn't feel right. And um, a few things that sort of looked like they were missing and you wouldn't believe it, the house had been broken into and my hair had been stolen, which, uh, which was <laughs> really unusual, <laughs> but that's, that's the truth. That's what happened. So my hair got stolen. So it, um, yeah, it's no longer with me, unfortunately. So it never got tracked down. No, well it didn't. Well, we found out in, in Egypt you live in apartments and the owner of our apartment lived upstairs and a lot of people still have maids, essentially. Uh, nannies, you might want to call them. And the nanny had a key to our apartment. So she must have seen my hair at some stage and wanted it. And anyway, so she actually broke into the house and took cameras and I think we had iPods and a few other things which we got back. Everything came back except for my hair which um, it was really hard to, my Arabic's pretty poor, but I was trying to speak to the, you know, the landlord and trying to explain to him that my hair had been stolen and don't want the cameras and the iPods, all I want back is my hair. And he was like, mate, you got no hope. Your ball, just get over it. So it broke down in translation there, but the hair never came back. What a bizarre ending to the most famous hair in footy. Oh, it's, it's sad and unfortunate. I would love to have it, yeah, considering it's not coming back, but. It is what it is. It's almost a wonderful story to tell, though. You're probably going to get more leverage out of the story than the actual ponytail now, though. Unbelievable, really. Like, yeah, bizarre. Now, another, oh, I suppose, bizarre, I suppose, mm. scary, I suppose, amazing story would be what happened to you on Feb 2, 2011. A child is born and the revolution and just total anarchy. Yeah, my son was born on that day, on the 2nd of um, February. As known as the Battle of the Camel. Um, and yeah, so Egyptian Revolution took place um, when we were there. Obviously, my wife was overdue. Um, so it was a pretty hairy time. Um, all the poli police sort of withdrew from the streets and it became lawless essentially. And then, um, so we managed to book in for her to have a C section just to make sure that we could get to the hospital in time. So the, the drive to the hospital was once again um, pretty confronting because, yeah, there was every sort of couple of hundred metres would be a group of men armed with machetes, guns, you name it, whatever they had. And they'd stop you on the side of the road, ask you a few questions, and then if all was good, then you'd move on. So you didn't know whether they were just residents looking after their little patch or um, the police had sort of employed a few thugs to go out there to terrorise the people. And then they also released about 30,000 prisoners from the jails, so you didn't know who was stopping you. So you just sort of, oh, here we go again. Let's get through. So we, we made it to the hospital and yeah, my son was born on the, on the 2nd of February, which was a pretty violent day in the, in the, in the revolution. And we're about a kilometre from Tahrir Square where the revolution took place, um, at the hospital on the banks of the Nile River. And there was a lot of gunfire and helicopters flying around. And it was um, hard to explain, you know, the emotion because it was the most joyful day in my life, you know, uh, beautiful creation. Our son's here, but then I guess that responsibility of fatherhood and not knowing what sort of lay ahead was, yeah, quite confronting. Yeah, it's hard to explain in words. So what happened next? How quickly did you get out of there? Well, we waited for a couple of days and then um, we left the hospital. And uh, at that stage, all of the foreigners had been evacuated. And there was uh, the word on the street that there was a, a foreign hand involved with the revolution. So they were targeting any foreigners that were left. And, I would have been one of only a couple, if any, who were left in the country. And so her family, my wife's family came and um, got us in the car and I sort of ducked down and went undercover for a little bit. And we managed to navigate the streets and got home safely. And, and then we just rode out the, the revolution through that. And um, we couldn't get passports or we couldn't travel. Um, so we just had to ride it out. But um, a few months later, when things started to quiet down a little bit, we'll able to go through the process the embassy to get a um, passport for a little fellow and we came back to Australia for a bit and returned to Egypt we just sort of escaped it for a, a month or so to take care of some business in Melbourne and yeah went back to Egypt. That is quite incredible so when you say wrote it out you just were in the house while this revolutionary war was going on. Yeah it was where we were we got an apartment over near the pyramids and one of the prisons where they released all the prisons from was on the route back into Cairo and so they all sort of came through our area and so it was a little bit scary at night. I don't know whether it's a little bit scary. It wasn't a little too, bit wasn't scary? I'm petrified listening uh, to no, this. To the point where I'd barricade the door at night. Um, you know, I'd just get like a shoe rack and I'd put a couple bits of furniture in, in front of the door just in case somebody came in. And you look out the window, bullets flying around and tanks patrolling the streets. And 
yeah, it was a little bit going on, um, but yeah, it became the norm, you know, and so you, you still had to go and get your groceries and your limited supplies and um, on the streets, but you could still get the bare essentials. And so you just, yeah, play on after and that. after a week or two, was it okay for foreigners or were you still nervous leaving no. the house each time? Yeah, it was always a bit, yeah, a bit hot. Yeah, you never quite know who you're gonna bump into and, and no foreigners came back for months, really. Yeah, I didn't see too many other yeah, expats floating around um, in Cairo, but yeah, I was fine. They yeah, could make no a movie out of your life. And the way you're telling mm. this, it's just like, yeah, just duck down, got some milk, a couple of bullets flying around, a <laughs> couple of tanks. Well, it just became life. And you, you look at all these people from war-torn countries and you know, at the end of the day, you have to play on essentially. Um, life still goes on and still you have to eat and do everything else and people work and the economy still has to um, chug along so there's a few little obstacles in there but it didn't break out into civil war or anything like that so we're pretty fortunate and I guess the violence only really went for you know not even a month really so and it sort of settled down after that and then it was yeah it was interesting times though a powerful time in history to live through and to experience it and um, sort of dealing with the aftermath you know my son's a child of revolution he's giving me a bit of, bit of hell mate he always gives me a bit of curry so I reckon he's a creature of his environment you know it was pretty volatile him growing up so he's yeah making sure we never forget I can only imagine what was Dan Southern like mentally after returning to Australia after living in Egypt for all that time and had the challenges you experienced internally resolved by the time you came back well, I, I actually, when I went to Egypt, I worked as a tour leader. So I was running trips from Cairo through to Istanbul. And so we'd have small groups, maximum of 12 people, three weeks, four weeks with these clients. So I actually used to use my group as group therapy, essentially, knowing that they were sort of strangers coming to my life for X amount of time, offload all my baggage, you know, get different point of view, different perspective on things, learn a lot about myself, you know, saw lots of, I guess, traits in people that I didn't necessarily like but thought gee that that's me um, so I like to think I came back a, a lot better person um, really hard to actually transition back into life in Australia um, so it took a while but I guess what helped me is that we didn't sort of come back to one of the big cities when we came back to Australia I ended up going to Tennant Creek um, for a period of time and then Alice Springs um, working with the Clontar Foundation with the young indigenous men trying to engage them in the school so it was pretty isolated and it was on a, a new adventure for me um, pretty hard for my wife to go from Cairo where there's 22 million to Alice Springs of you know 20,000 yep. so she um, did exceptionally well in, in her transition and relocation to Australia but yeah it took me a while to readjust and settle but um, back home now and yeah, done the full circuit back in Perth and left here as a you know wide-eyed sort of 18 year old and had a few journeys since. Biggest differences you've noticed in Australia from now to when you left? Oh, the cost of living. Yeah, <laughs> definitely is hurting all of us. And you know, I think no one's immune to that, but not a lot. Yeah, I guess Perth here, it's become a lot more diverse. Um, yeah, obviously with the immigration and stuff, which has been great. You know, I used to call Perth the, the Wild West. And when I was growing up, you didn't get a lot of exposure to um, people from other countries. Um, so that's a really positive thing. Um, we, we love that. Obviously my wife being Egyptian and you know, I feel like I've always got a connection to, um, you know, people from different parts of the world so and um, so I guess that would be the biggest change I've seen here and obviously Melbourne when I spend time in Melbourne that's you know gone through the roof as far as the population there and it's a big city now it's always buzzing but um, yeah not a lot changes but you know we have evolved a little bit I think and you've got two children they're into their sport yeah two boys yeah so Zachary and then we've got Zidane who's 12 and 7 they are now and um, um, Zico, we call him. He loves his footy. He's quite aspirational. He goes okay. He's pretty handy. So, um, you know, he'd love to play in the AFL one day. So we'll nurture that dream. And if he's good enough, um, be pretty fulfilling watching him play. And Zidane loves his footy, but you know, he keeps his cards pretty close to his chest. So he doesn't give too much away. He plays odds kick, um, but it doesn't quite have that same passion just yet as his older brother. But we'll see how we go. But. Yeah, from reasonable stock, you know, I was lucky enough to play at the highest level and their grandfather played international soccer or football for Egypt and played for a very powerful club, similar to like a Collingwood in the um, Egyptian domestic league. So I'd um, like to think they've got some decent genes to work with and we'll see how they go. Yeah, yeah, a bit of hard how work. does dad go watching the footy? Not real good. No, I'm, pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty hard. You know, I'm not an ugly parent, you know, but he's, you know, just love watching them, to yeah. be honest with you. And that's a message. You know, if he, if he shirks an issue, then I'd have to pull him up. 
which is not great because footy's a hard, tough game and I got busted up on the journey and finished young, so maybe we've got to teach him to be a, a wingman and stay on the outside and don't worry about getting the hard ball gets. But if he, if he doesn't commit, then yeah, I get a little bit frustrated and sometimes I have to forget, oh, I have to remember, and uh, you know, but it's, uh, yeah, you're going to get hurt. It's a, it's a given, it's a tough game. You can't carry the southern surname and not put your body over the line. I would hope not, <laughs> I would hope not, but, but yeah, be better if he does sit on the outside and get a couple of cheap ones, I think. Maybe just for his longevity in the game. 2016, something happens that a lot of Bulldog supporters never thought would. They win the Premiership. You went over to Melbourne to watch the game. The club looked after you with a ticket. What was that experience like? Oh, that was amazing. Yeah, and we, we talk about the, the Bulldog supporters and, and for me to just share that joy with them was a day that I'll never forget. You know, you have your children and you, you have your wedding and you know, as far as Australians go and people that love footy, you know, when your when team gets up and wins a flag, that's pretty special as well. And I took my nephew, my, my brother passed away from cancer young and um, his oldest son was a Bulldog supporter. So I took him over with me and we managed to share an amazing day together. And um, yeah, just seeing the supporters and celebrating, it was um, a very special day. Yeah, yeah, loved it. Absolutely magical. And a couple of years ago, you were at the game here over in Perth when they went down to the D's in the grand final. The fact that you witnessed them win one a few years ago, did it soften the blow on that occasion watching them lose or not really? Nah, not no. really. <laughs> it, it was, we were really fortunate and uh, I managed to take my whole family, so mum, dad, my sister, nephews, uh, my boys. Um, so we, we actually got invited to the President's lunch that day, which was amazing. It's always, you never knock back those invites, but to be honest with you, I would have much preferred to be down in the outer with the family, you know, and, and, and with the, the general public, really feel the atmosphere of the grand final. But, you know, it was, it was a great game. And in the end, I had to just applaud the Demons. Yep. And they, they deserved the premiership and it had been a long drought for them as well. So didn't make it any easier, but, you know, it was a great spectacle. And I think the state did it very well. And um, yeah, they were very impressive though. And they turned their, their foot down and off they went, they were, yeah. Oh, really impressive. It was a terrific grand final, that is for sure. Now, Dan, we've absolutely loved having a chat today. We're just going to finish with some punchy questions to wrap it up. Best player you ever played against? Gary Ablett Senior. Best player you ever played with? Oh, that's a tough one. Chris Grant, I guess. Most annoying teammate? Oh. <laughs> Tony Libertore. <laughs> Why was Liver annoyed? Because you saw the way he played, he was like that at training. Oh. So if you even you matched up with him, you know you're in for a, a grind. Yeah, but <laughs> Rip and Blake love Liver, but yeah. Footy highlight. To be honest with you, retiring was a highlight. Yeah, that send-off that I got, um, it was just closure on it. Yeah, so you know, I didn't win the flags, didn't do anything special, but that day I retired was pretty special. Best spray you ever heard from a coach? Oh, Terry Wallace for sure, I don't know which one, but yeah, take your pick. That one that was pretty famous we spoke about earlier, but yeah, player used to give them out pretty good. Best sledge you ever heard on a footy field? Oh, that's testing me. That's testing me. I, I, I couldn't tell you, Quinny. Yeah, I, I was too sort of in my own world to really pay too much attention to what everyone else was saying, so I had to let you down there, mate. I, I can't pull one out, sorry. What would you give to get the rat tail back? Oh. Everything I got, <laughs> maybe, maybe the kids, maybe the kids. It's not coming back. So it's a, if anyone is over in Egypt and they see a yeah. rat tail at a shop, purchase it and send it over to Dan Summit. Yeah. Dan, you're a legend. Thanks very much, Quinny. Enjoyed the chat, mate. Hey lads, a guy in the community reckons we take the overs. Do we trust him? Well, his username is Big Stats Guy. Say no more. Connect with a community of like-minded punters only in Labrox communities. T's and C's apply and available on website. What are you really gambling with?